So John chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, and this is God's word. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard, or when, sorry, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And that was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship or you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And amen. We will pick it up as we do go through. Uh, Let's pray and seek God's wisdom as we study his word together. Father God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, what we have heard and read and even sung so far. Lord, I pray that your word would indeed penetrate into our hearts. That it would not just be information for us to learn, uh, but it would be truly transformation in our lives as the Holy Spirit works your word and causes us to be obedient unto it. Lord, fill our understanding with the knowledge of Jesus this morning. Help us to see him in his grace and his mercy and his love. Ultimately, the one who loved us and gave his life for us. For it's in his name I pray. Amen. There is a story uh, of the Model T Ford car. Now, I'm pretty much sure that none of you were around in 1908. Uh, 
Terry was looking at me funny there. I don't know, Terry. No, you weren't, no. Uh, but in 1908, it was the first production car, first mass-produced car, and it had a very famous slogan. You could have it in any color you wanted as long as it was black. And so it was a very limited machine, and yet there was a very apocryphal story of a man who had one of the Model T cars because it was obviously the first car. It tended to break down a lot. And so this man was at the side of the road with his engine smoking and billowing and was trying to figure out what was wrong. He fancied himself as a bit of a mechanic, and so he opened up the hood of the car and began to tinker. And after about an hour or two, uh, he remained at the side of the road, uh, and all of a sudden, a limousine popped up uh, beside him in the car, and an older gentleman ducked his head out and said, are you having car trouble? And he said, well, no, I'm I'm a mechanic. I I know what I'm doing, but I just haven't figured out what needs done yet. And so the, the older man pulled up and sat and waited, and 10 minutes passed, and 20 minutes passed, and half an hour passed and an hour passed and the older gentleman got out of the car and said look I think if you just tighten that bit you'll find it'll work and so the man thought well I've been here so long I suppose I don't know whether he knows what he's doing or not but I'll give it a go and he and he tightened the bit and he turned the key and the car started and he turned to the older man and says oh you must be a very reputable mechanic and he goes no my name's Henry Ford and I invented the car (laughs) a few weeks ago we looked at John the Baptist And we had this idea of the question, you know, do you know who I am? And in that instance, John very clearly knew who Jesus was. He was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. He knew he was God. He knew he was the Messiah. He knew and was pointing to Jesus as the one who was to come in order to save and deliver his people. And yet here we have read, and indeed last week as James picked up the account, a woman speaking to Jesus, not only a woman, a Samaritan woman, an outsider, someone who wasn't in a sense of the people of God, and she was standing at a well speaking to Jesus and had no idea who he was. As James picked up last week in the idea of the fact that Jesus is greater than Jacob, as that held the first part of the conversation, what I want us to look at this morning is to take a look at who this woman was. To take a look at who Jesus, uh, I suppose, spoke to her as, and indeed as he revealed himself to her. All of the wonderful truth that we can learn even now, and the beauty. It, it's, a, I suppose, indicative of a principle called dramatic irony, where the people listening know exactly what's going on. We know Jesus is Jesus. We know he is the Christ. We know he is the Messiah. We know he is the Savior. But it's wonderful to imagine what it must have been like for this woman, standing in a well in the heat of the day speaking to Jesus and and he revealed himself to her. Uh, But we're going to walk through the account and look at uh, three things in particular. The first one is that Jesus exposes her thirst. If you look with me at verse 13. So Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. I I love this account because it's so natural. It's just like one of those conversations that take place in the life of Jesus. In a sense, on the surface, it doesn't seem very theological. It's not what he would have had with the religious leaders and the finer points of the law. He's speaking to a woman at a well, or so it seems. He comes looking for a drink and yet begins the conversation by talking about thirst, but not physical thirst, 
but that thirst that we all have in our lives. As you know, Jesus was there in Samaria, a place that Jews never really went, because as it said here, the Jews and the Samaritans didn't have dealings. That was a bit of an understatement. In fact, it was legitimate for a Jew that if a Samaritan passed his path, that he could spit on the ground and curse them. And so you can tell of the antagonism between the two groups of people. And here comes Jesus into Samaria, the Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, and he he calls out to a woman in the heat of the day, could you get me a drink? She begins to get all practical with him, as you know. And look, you don't have a bucket, you don't have like a cup, you have nothing to kind of get the water from the well. And, And how come you're asking me for a drink? And Jesus here uncovers something about thirst. And very quickly we realize that he's talking about something and she's talking about something and they're two very different things. See, when Jesus talks about thirst, he's not talking about buckets and wells. He's talking about something that we all know about and yet we're unconsciously aware of it. The Bible will be very clear, and indeed as we look down throughout history, it's something that has been repeated over and over again. There's a very, a very intense thirst at the heart of humanity. A hunger, a desire. And it's for something that we need, it's something that we require, it's something that we long for. And yet for the majority of us, we don't actually know what it is. If you think about me on a Wednesday night when I come home from soccer, and I open the fridge and I'm standing before it, and I know I want something, I just I don't know what it is. And that's the idea, that, that we are born with a hunger and a thirst and a desire for something, and in our lives we don't know what it is. One ancient uh, theologian would say that we are born with a God-shaped hole in our lives and only God can fill it. And Jesus is speaking here of this thirst, this hunger, this desire. As the woman talks about wells and buckets and water, Jesus is saying, yes, uh, there may be physical thirst, there may be physical hunger, there may be physical desire, but there's something else going on here that you need to be aware of. You can see there in those verses, he says, you know, whoever drinks of this water, well, they'll be thirsty again. You may take a glass of water, but, but in a few hours you'll be thirsty again. And yet there is a thirst in your life that that you will continually thirst after, continually hunger after, and continually desire that nothing can fulfill it but the water that I give. It's interesting, we spent a bit of time in John's Gospel. And, and this theme of who Jesus is, is over and over again so important to John. You remember even in the very first words, he is the word, the logos, the reason for life, the purpose for life. He was the one that is the light of the world. He is there in the beginning, before everything. He is eternal. He is God himself. And he is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who would bring deliverance. He is the Lamb of God that would take away the sins of the world. John is trying to get across to us over and over and over again who this Jesus is. And now we realize that he is the truth, he's the giver of life, and indeed he is the satisfaction of our souls. He is the one that gives living water in which we will never thirst again. You know, if we are honest with ourselves, we all have that desire in us. And we all try and cram things into that God-shaped hole in order to satisfy us. And I'm not going to ask anybody this morning. But we all know what that thing is. It may be material goods that whenever we're feeling down, just making that little purchase might make us feel better. 
It might be books. It's not confession now. It might be you know, relationships. We, we might hunger after friends. And, and, and we might hunger after the, the appeal of other people. It may be in, in romantic relationships. It may be in a, a whole plethora of things that we have in our lives. But there is something that we feel in our heart that is incomplete until we have that thing. And Jesus turns the tables on this woman. As I said, he very clearly exposes her thirst. Yes, he is physically thirsty. But he turns the tables upon this woman. But in verse 14, he doesn't just say that he is identified or exposed to thirst. But he is the one who can satisfy it. If you look at verse 14, the water that I will give him will never, or whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. You can imagine this woman, and again, we we know the story, so it's hard to imagine, but coming and offering this Jew a drink, and yet he turns the tables to begin to speak about her heart and her desire and her thirst and her longing. But Jesus doesn't leave it there. Because as he exposes her thirst, he very graciously and secondly uncovers her heart. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, go and call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship when you do not know, but we worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you, am he. So Jesus exposes her thirst. She's thirsty. She has desires in her life. And what he does here is he scratches just a little bit deeper and begins to put his finger on things. He unfolds this conversation in these few verses around three different elements. Relationships, worship and deliverance. And each of these for her is a longing in her life, but not just in her life, but in all of our lives, if we're at least a bit honest with it. And he skillfully kind of pulls back the curtain of her life and says, okay, this thirst, this hunger, this desire, this, this, I suppose, longing for living water that I'm going to bring, I'm going to show you how you're drinking from broken sisters. I'm going to show you how you're longing in the wrong place. I'm going to show you how you're trying to cram things into that God-shaped hole, which will never satisfy you. There are many believe that this woman lived an incredibly popular and interesting life. In fact, if we knew someone in the town who had five husbands uh, and one who was not their husband, you can imagine the reputation this lady would have had. Many ancient scholars believe that the fact that she was there getting water at midday in the heat of the sun, uh, when most people went at about five or six in the morning when it was cool and nice, uh, was because that she didn't really like to be around other people. And you can imagine why. You can imagine the reputation she would have had. But we see here this reputation touched upon by Jesus. 
In verse 16 to 18, Jesus drives into her relationships, not necessarily to condemn her, but to show her again that thirst in her life and where she was trying to satisfy her longing. She had had five husbands. And one that she was with at the minute was not her husband. And in those days, people did remarry and there were illnesses and people died young and a lot of different things going on. But there's something in this that Jesus is pressing his finger on. That this woman has so many husbands in a sense, not because they keep dying and different things, but because she is looking for something in order to satisfy this longing in their life. So the reality is that she is crying out for something that she's repeatedly trying to hunger after, repeatedly trying to grab after. And again, if we are honest with ourselves, it's that same thing in our lives. If we want something really bad, I don't know about you, but you go into a shop and you see something. For me, it's gadgets and different things. And you think, if I just had that, I'll be happy. If I just had that, that would make me feel good. If I just had that, it would bring a little bit of sunshine into my life. And yet 15 minutes after you get it, well, it doesn't really do all the things that I thought it would do. Obviously, we're very fortunate and blessed to have small children. But if you ever see a small child on Christmas Day, you see this. Because they're so excited and, and so, yeah, it's, it's the best thing ever. And then by, by the next day, like, you know, everything's in a corner and they're wanting something else. And yet, are we any different? <laughs> are we any different? For this woman, obviously, in relationships, she tried to find that person. We have this wonderful thing out there, you know, finding the one And a lot of people go through a lot of twos and threes and fours (laughs) in order to try and find that wonderful, magical person that is perfect. And if that's you this morning, you're probably not there. (laughs) You have to settle for people like us. And yet, it's a lot harder to hit a moving target, as we know. And so whenever Jesus starts pressing on that area of her life that she doesn't like, well, she kind of moves the target. She says, ha ha, I realize you're a prophet. You're somebody that kind of knows what's going on here. Let's not talk about that. Let's talk about serious things. Let's talk about worship. In verses 20 to 24, she begins to speak about her father's worshiping on the mountain there in Samaria. She talks about Jerusalem and the temple. And she begins to have a, a theological debate with this prophet you know that's what your angle seems to be let's talk about worship and the reality is even in our relationships Jesus had never stopped talking about worship she begins to talk about the Jews and the Samaritans and as James said last week you know there there were a lot of similarities between the Jews and Samaritans but there were enough significant differences that had divided them for centuries what way does God want to be worshipped Where is the location that God wants to be worshipped? For the Samaritans, it was in Samaria. And indeed for the Jews, it was fixed around the temple in Jerusalem. And she said, well look, if we are truly going to worship God, is it going to be here? Is it going to be there? What is it? How does God want to be worshipped? And and, and what are we supposed to do? Because ultimately we have to be right before God. Jesus picks up this thread and wonderfully, and wonderfully threads it through. He said, in the future, worship is not about where, but a who. In fact, worship has always been about a who. It's just that numerous times we've got it wrong. See, if you know about the history of the Jews, when they began to worship the temple, rather than the God who dwelt in that temple, that's when things began to go wrong. 
Pick up some of the prophets in the Old Testament and read some of the words that God says. Isaiah chapter 1 would, would turn you. I hate your solemn assemblies. I hate your feasts. I hate your sacrifices. Why? Because your heart's not in it. You're bringing these things to me and you think that you want me, but you don't. You just want the ritual. You just want the experience. You just want to think you're worshipping and yet you're not truly worshipping because your heart's not in it. As I said, Jesus has never stopped talking about worship. Her detail and her you know, little idiosyncrasies about where worship should really take place. Jesus says here that it's not really about where it is, but who you're worshipping. Jesus won't let her sit still in the things that she's interested in to deflect him from what's truly going on. Again, if you think of children... Do you ever catch a child on doing something and the first word out of their mouth is somebody else? <laughs> I used to remember whenever my mum caught me on doing things. And I'd been standing there with like a broken glass beside me. I said, what happened? Craig pushed me three days ago and I fell over and broke that glass. But when did you break it? There and I, but he pushed me three days. He did it. It wasn't me. It was nothing to do with me. And you can see her deflecting here. Your relationships, you're worshipping your relationships. Oh, no, no, I'm not, I'm not. I'm trying to worship God properly. No, but it doesn't matter where it is. It's who you're worshipping. Are you worshipping the right person? And then she moves again. And she says, ah, but when the Messiah comes, everything will be okay. When the Messiah comes, I will have all of my answers. When the Messiah comes, everything will be put right. It's interesting. Jesus never stops. <laughs> he keeps pressing and pressing and pressing. See, the Messiah for the Samaritans, as equally as much for the Jews, was a, was a wonderful figure. The Messiah was the one who would bring all of the answers. The Messiah would be the one that would bring completion. The Messiah would be the one that would bring shalom, peace, contentment, fulfillment, and satisfaction. The Messiah was the one who would conquer the enemies of God. The Messiah would be the one that would recreate everything in you. The Messiah would be the one that would bring perfection of God to here. And she says, yeah, when the Messiah comes, he will reveal everything. He will make everything right. When the Messiah comes, he will straighten out things like relationships. When the Messiah comes, he will straighten out things like, you know, where we worship. When the Messiah comes, everything will be good. And I don't want us to miss verse 26. Because you have to understand who Jesus is speaking to here. Jesus was speaking last chapter to Nicodemus who was a ruler of the Jews who was one of the cream of the crop who was one of the you know the, the leaders of Israel and he was explaining to him you remember like a kind of a four year old child all of these little things and then he ends up out in Samaria to in a sense one of the enemies of God one of the outcasts one of the not God's people he, she was one of the ones who had a, a bit of a poor reputation and yet in verse 26 Jesus said to her I who speak to you am he You're waiting for the Messiah. I'm here. You're waiting for the Christ. I have come. 
The thirst you have, the life you long for, the love you crave, the worship you give, and the answers that you're looking for are to be found in me. Can you imagine the realization just right there? You know, we talked about Henry Ford getting out and saying, I'm Henry Ford, I invented this car. Can you imagine standing there and realizing that you stood before the one who invented the universe? Who holds everything together by the power of his hand? Who spoke the world into existence? And do you imagine when she finally figured out who she had been talking to? All her longings, all her debates and about worship, all her longings for the Christ who would make everything right. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. It doesn't only expose her thirst or uncover her heart, but thirdly, he transforms her life. Look at verse 27. It's just then his disciples came back and they marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. I love the disciples. You know, they kind of say that the Bible's made up. And you think if you were the disciples writing this, you would leave all out the parts that you were stupid. You know, because they're repeatedly stupid. And, and it's funny because, you know, all of this wonderful talk, you know, she's just figured out that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the promised one of God, the Savior, the King of Kings. And all of a sudden, like the air going out of a balloon, the disciples show up. And, and it's all over in a sense. It's funny, their concern is that he's talking with a woman. You know, what's he doing? But nobody actually questioned them. And yet as much as the disciples were having this little discussion amongst themselves, the woman is in no need of direction. Verse 28, she left her water jar, went away into town and said to the people, she went into the town for the crowds that she likely avoided going to the well at that time, for the, for the shame that she may have had in her life as she was a disreputable woman. She then stopped avoiding crowds and ran to them. There's no thought of her reputation there, but only the reputation of Christ. Practically, she left her water jar. She came for water. Why did she leave without the water? Well, she found the living water. <laughs> She'd found a thing that would satisfy her soul. She'd found the one who would complete her life. And yet, rather than unpack her story, I always thought this was interesting. Rather than kind of say, well, look, I said this, and he said that. And, and, and you know, I, I changed my mind and tried to talk about this, and then talk about that. I talked about, you know, where we were to worship. I talked about all the wonderful theological things. She doesn't say that. She says, look, I have found a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Come and see. Come and see. Can you imagine if she was disreputable and she walked in and said, I found another man, and he's the satisfaction of my soul. And they would say, huh. Of course you did, just like the other five. <laughs> but she's like, can this be the Christ? And it's wonderful because if you move on down to verse 39, you'll actually see, in a sense, the end of that account. It says, Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with him, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. 
They said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Saviour of the world. There's three things that we can learn from this that I hope will both challenge us and, and encourage us. And the first is there from that first part about thirst. And the reality that Jesus is the only one that can satisfy that thirst in our lives. We have to be careful with this. Because for us, all of us thirst after something. All of us have this thing. And whether we're aware of it or not, there are things in our life that we want and we desire and they always seem out of reach. There are things that we think that will complete us. Things that we think will satisfy us. And yet, it's just not there. And yet as simplistic as it sounds, Jesus is the answer to that thirst. Now, as I said, we need to be careful. Because there are a lot of people that think, you know, if you're having a hard life, if you're having a difficult time, if you're ill, or if you don't have the material wealth that you want to have, come to Jesus and he will give you everything. That's not what the Bible says. That's not what the Bible teaches. The reality is we don't come to Christ because of what he brings, but because of who he is. And it's the wonderful reality here in which that woman left her water jar. She didn't come because, you know, her initial desire was, if you give me this living water, then I'll not have to come back and forward to this well every day. It's a bit of a hassle. You know, it's a a bit of a trick. You know, if you could just magically fill up my water jar every day, that would be phenomenal. But she goes away realizing that it's not the things that Jesus can bring that are the wonderful and the profound and the beautiful things. It's who he is. He said, reality for a Christian is, we don't get all of the other things. We get Christ and he is enough. You see, the thing that we're thirsting after, the thing that we're longing after, is a relationship with God that can only be found in Christ. That's what we need. That's what we want at our very core and our very heart and for our very longings. That is who we need. All of those other things may satisfy us and and make us happy for a little while, but they will never give us joy. They will never give us satisfaction. They will never complete us as Christ does. It's wonderful. When the Bible uses language of putting our faith in Christ or on Christ, it's actually about resting. Do you ever find chasing after something? And even though you get it, you still need to keep going. And we expend all of our energy and our reputation or our our friend or our, our popularity or our material things. And it never ends. And we chase and we hunger and we stretch and we reach and we expend so much energy and we're never happy. It's wonderful. I love reading books of really rich people who get to the end of their life and they have all the riches that the world could offer and they're still not happy. And you want to grab them and say... You're looking in the wrong place. You're drinking from the wrong well. You're hungering after the wrong thing. And yet when the Bible calls us to come to Christ, it calls us to come and rest. Come and stop. Why? Because I'm all that you need. (laughs) Your search is over. It's finished. You're mine and I am yours. I am there to satisfy the longing of your heart. And in a way then, we're not bound by the other things because as Christ satisfies us, all of those other things are just little trinkets. 
the things that will eventually be on the rubbish heap. And in 10,000 years from now, 100,000 years from now, all of those little things that we chased after will be meaningless in the joy of eternity if we have Christ. But secondly, not just that Jesus satisfies our thirst, but we are to worship the Christ, we are to worship him in spirit and in truth. It's wonderful there, and I hope that you kind of uh, picked up on it as we were reading through in verse 41. Jesus spoke earlier on about worshipping in spirit and truth. He said, and many more believed because of what? Because of his word. As we looked at, we all worship. Every one of us worships. And, and we maybe not think of it like that, but when the Bible talks of worship, it, it actually uses that word of, of giving worth to something. Something that I suppose we find worthwhile in our lives. And that's the thing that we invest in, both our time and our talents and our energy and our finances and our resources. They're the things that we spend time on and time with and money on. They're the things that we you know, long for and they're the things that we think about. And, and the Bible says they're the things that we worship. And as the woman tried to flip that on Jesus and say, look, this isn't a, a relationship problem. This is a worship problem. Jesus says the reality is everything's a worship problem. If you're worshipping in the wrong way and worshipping the wrong person. And yet here when Jesus says that we now, as the people of God, can worship in spirit and truth, that's something ridiculously profound. Because the Bible says a statement that at least on the surface can seem weird. But we are unable to worship God as he is due without the Holy Spirit. We are unable to worship God. We are unable to please God. We are able to bring joy to God. We are unable to do these things in and of ourselves. It is only when we have been ransomed and saved that we have come repentant to Jesus, that we have had our sins forgiven, that we are reconciled with God, that we are part of his family, and we not only have the Holy Spirit, but have him indwelling within us to sanctify us and transform us into the likeness of Christ that we can truly worship. Anybody can say Jesus is Lord as words. But as Paul would say, you say it with your lips and believe it in your heart. That's an entirely different thing. And as we learn from here, it's not just a worship in spirit. It's not just an outward expression that is based on our feelings and and nice butterflies in our stomach. But it's grounded in the foundation of his word. If we are not worshipping God as he desires then we're not worshipping him at all. You see, we can come to Jesus and we can get that warm and fuzzy feeling in our heart. And I've met many people who have, and yet they faded away after a while because they've been caught up in emotion and caught up in feelings and caught up in desires, and yet their faith has not been grounded in his word. Jesus didn't go on around just making people feel good. But because he was the truth. And yet this idea of worshipping God. I, I always find it hard to get my head around this. From, from who I am. And where I've been. That, that I can come before God as his child. And he knows me. He knows me in a way that you don't. Praise God. But that I can come not shamefully, but
but joyfully into God's presence. That I can come. Do you know that their thing that, you know, the, the only one that can approach a father continuously with joy without reproach is a child? Like if you keep knocking my door every 15 minutes from 3 o'clock in the morning, I'm going to get cross with you very quickly. But if one of my kids does it, <laughs> my son, and we can come into the presence of God and worship him in spirit and in truth, that we can rest in his peace, that we can know his fulfillment, that we can recognize his joy. And this is something that is available for us as we are accepted as his children. It's wonderful. And yet it doesn't stop there. Because finally, just like hers, our joy should overflow to tell others. We have packaged up, sadly, evangelism as if it's some sort of talent, as if it's some sort of gift that certain people have, as if you have to go on a course, or you have to have a qualification, or you have to do, read certain books or listen to certain speakers. And yet the wonderful thing is when people meet Jesus... He doesn't say, <laughs> excellent, now you've come to faith. I want you to go in this six-week course and then you're going to be an evangelist. You're going to get a badge and you're going to get like a nice suit and you're going to go out and you're going to do things. When people meet Jesus and they're transformed by him, they're so overflowing with joy that the inevitable outcome is that they tell others. The inevitable outcome is that they just blurt it out. We had Caleb home the other day in nursery and they uh, had horses at nursery. And literally he could barely breathe getting back into the car with Julie to tell his mummy that there was a horse and he was on the horse and the horse did poops. And that, that was that his whole life was about telling her of this amazing thing that happened in his life. It was a horse. Why are we so reluctant to tell people about Christ? You know, this woman... Who, who, in a sense, was an outcast that may have likely been shunned by our community, may have been the gossip, the focus of people's fun as they poked it at her, who would have been probably embarrassed in her company, became a flaming beacon of joy as she ran into that town and told anybody that could listen of what this man had done in her life. It's wonderful to hear those people say that. It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard it for ourselves, and we know that this indeed is the saviour of the world. Yes, but she went, and she told, and she rejoiced. She couldn't keep it to herself. You know, if we truly have found the satisfaction of our souls in Christ, if we truly understand that through him we can worship and in spirit and in truth and come before God as loved children, how then could we not tell others? How then could we not overflow with joy so that they too will come to know him who is the saviour of the world? I hope, I hope this has challenged you. It's challenged me all week as I've been praying over it and thinking about it. But that idea that he is our satisfaction we can truly worship through him and that our joy should overflow and spill out of our lives and our lips as we point people towards Christ. Let's pray.